Hello, it's been a great pleasure for season four of the Napoleonic Quarterly to have David Hollins on. David is uh, well known uh, as being someone who knows an awful lot um, about the period. His books published by Osprey include um, works on Austrian commanders of the Napoleonic Wars, Austrian frontier troops, Austrian grenadiers and infantry, Austrian Napoleonic artillery, Hungarian hussar, uh, and and on, on Marengo, I think... Uh, uh, listeners will be able to spot the theme <laughs> that emerges from there. Um, and, uh, you know, D- D- David is somebody who um, is, is not afraid to point out um, when things aren't quite right. And so um, it's it's been a real uh, pleasure to, to have him talking through developments um, uh, in 1799. Well, David, um, we've just completed the last of our recordings for this current season. Thank, thank, thank you so much. And I, well, it, it was great fun uh, hearing you talk through it all. And actually, you probably did the the second quarter of 1799, where I had you doing everything from the Rhine all the way down to Naples. It was probably one of our most complicated segments ever. Yes, well, uh, well, th- thank you to you for doing all the work and making uh, making the podcast because I only do a little, <laughs> I do a few few bits and pieces for you, but you do you have to do all the work for it. Um, yeah, it's uh, yeah, it was it, it, it's just a case of really banging the drum for Austria um, because it tends to get overlooked. Although, of course, they were they did most of the fighting really against the French right throughout the period, um, but um, very little has been written. I mean, a, a lot of it is really because of, of course, the the wars of the twentieth century. Uh, has made the English-speaking and the French-speaking world rather turn away from uh, the Germanic uh, sources. Yeah, I mean, I've only been to Vienna once and um, obviously made a beeline for the Army Museum, the National Army Museum. And uh, it was quite weird because the day I was doing it, they were holding a Star Wars sort of toy convention in the museum uh, and so I went into the obviously went straight to the Napoleonic section and had to fight my way past all these stormtroopers to look at the big pictures of Aspern Essling and things like that on the wall but 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 it was a, it was a really interesting you know experience taking a look at how how does a country with a mixed record in this period you know how 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 does it tell the story of of the fighting there and yeah the big painting on the wall was of the big success that they had in 1809 but 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 that you know that, that there was a lot there to 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 explore um it, it was a really interesting experience it, it is um i mean it is such a complicated subject i think people have have steered away from it as well and I think there's been this kind of idea that you probably have to speak about six languages <laughs> to, <laughs> yes. to get on top of it. But actually, German and French is, is, is enough for, for most of it. But um, I, I tend to feel that uh, it, it, I think probably 30 years ago, I, 30, 35 years ago, I suppose, there was this idea that the Austrians just turned up for a regular beating. Um, but it, it, it isn't quite like that, <laughs> and unfortunately, the the the, um, the empire is seen very much through the perspective of French sources. So there's there's a lot of rubbish written about it. Yeah, and most of the books that you know you read in English are about 
well, they are about Napoleon, and often that involves running rings around the Austrians. And one of the things I've noticed, certainly a point that Charles has made repeatedly throughout these initial episodes of the Napoleonic Quarterly, is about the armies of the Ancien Regime being really not that bad. You know, they, these were professional, effective troops, um, uh, uh, and and the. the the stats are not quite so disparaging, as it were, as as, as it might at first appear. Yeah. And yes, uh, Rothenberg, apparently, I, I was reading somewhere, he, he said that uh, the Austrians actually won, was it 64%, I think, of, I don't know quite how what his sample size was, but they actually won 64% of the battles uh, that they fought against the French. But uh, particularly with Charles's campaign in 1796, uh, you, you get... Um, it's very much overshadowed, of course, by Napoleon's uh, campaign. Um, but the camp- it was studied as much uh, as Napoleon's Italian campaign of the same year um, in the 19th century. But, of course, it's faded away over the 20th. That's very, very interesting. Yeah, Charles is not somebody who we instinctively know much about. He's not a big part of the story. But actually, you know, the, the, what we just recorded there was, oh, yeah, in uh, August 1799, he just nipped up to Mannheim and pushed the French back over the Rhine, which, whilst I sort of laughingly made a joke about it being, yep, yet another uh, nothing actually significant happening. But, but, but holding the line is significant there. It would have really changed things if, if it had gone the other way. Oh yes, I mean, the, Austria's been engaged in a policy of um, a long withdrawal from Germany, really from the time of the uh, War of the Austrian Succession in the 1740s. Um, but they are still the the, the the Austrian monarch is still the uh, emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, and still has responsibilities, uh, particularly in southern Germany, which, being Catholic, is more loyal. Um, but of course, if you're a small state in the middle of Germany, uh, you want the people who are going, the, the bigger states that are going to protect you are going to be the ones that uh, you line up with. And uh, the French had, at least uh, at the start of the 1796 campaign, they've been able to get over as far as sort of Munich and Amberg and places like that, and generally trash the place. <laughs> and um, and Charles had then later pushed them out. But the key thing was to keep them out of Germany. And, and of course, the same in Italy. Well, another really important part of the story that you've told is the relationship between the military commanders and the politicians. Oh, God. And, <laughs> and, and, and Tugu in particular, who uh, sort of young Metternich really didn't think much of at all, um, was was making what seemed to me like rational political decisions um, that that seemed sensible from the Austrian point of view. Is that your view? Um, yes. It, it's well. The the thing you have to understand um, is that the the foreign minister or the, the chancellor, as they were sometimes known, is a very powerful political figure, and he's the only one who has got direct access to the emperor. Everybody else has to go, has to sort of make an appointment through the the uh, cabinet secretariat, and so the the image that's been placed has been that Tugu has been is the war baron. He wants to destroy the French Revolution, and he's trying to direct the armies from 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 far away in Vienna. And this is not how it worked at all. Uh, the uh, the the 
what would happen is because of the the, the minister's importance with this Tugu or Stadion or Metternich, but they could sort of whisper in the emperor's ear, and the emperor, of course, would appoint the president of the Hofkriegsrat, which was the military administrative body. And the Hofkriegsrat would then make the military appointments when the armies went out into the field. And in the Austrian army, contrary to a lot of mythology about Napoleon and his staff system and all the rest of it, in the Austrian army, it's the chief of staff who is the really powerful figure. And it's very much the model that the Prussians develop later in the 19th century. And so these chiefs of staff are kind of working Effectively, they're working for the minute, the foreign minister, and there were three of them in 1799, uh, Castellet, who uh, initially is with Suvorov, Vyrota, who takes over, and of course, Zach, and they were known as Tugu's Benjamins, which is a biblical reference to little helpers. Right. <laughs> um, but you have, the, you, you then have the military establishment, which takes a more, um, they take a rational view. They, Austria is had always developed by really just by accidental acquisitions of territory and so their mentality is very much this criticism of the cordon system but what was their job their job was to defend the empire they weren't going out on expansionary campaigns or anything like this um but tugu yeah tugu he's what he's concerned about is the, the mayhem of the revolution when you see people getting their heads chopped off and that sort of thing, it makes you a bit nervous. Absolutely. It's, that's a very sensible approach to be, uh, hang on a second, let's be a bit wary of this. Uh, and um, he, he, what he wants is stability in France because he need, the Austrians need the French as allies against the Prussians. And of course, this goes back to the 1756 uh, alliance with France and the marriage of Louis the Sixteenth through Marie Antoinette, and he actually welcomes Napoleon taking power in the coup because he's actually got somebody who's stabilised the situation. It's not these these coups and and fighting between various factions and all this kind of thing. Hey, you've just completely joined up lots of dots in my head, you know, because you could still you could we can actually jump a long way ahead and see why okay if if it's really all about prussia um sort of austrian decision making then um you know the emperor's daughter heading off to paris in 1810 or thereabouts that it sort of makes sense that yeah it was all about prussia because we, we talked about that a little bit um on the podcast but but not not it does, it's not a constant note that comes up but that that preoccupation that the the backstory is is what explains it all i suppose um, yes, uh, I mean by by 1810, uh, the Austrians are also getting anxious about Russia uh, because Russia is fighting the Turks and coming more into the Balkans, yeah. um, where you've got Orthodox Christian populations, and the Austrians are getting very nervous about the Russians potentially controlling the Del the Danube Delta in what what is now Romania. And uh, coming round into Serbia and starting to encircle uh, the Austrians from the south as the Ottoman Empire collapses. So yeah. that's that's the rising thing. Charles and some of his um, supporters, who are they, they're often called the Peace Party, but in actual fact, their attitude was more one of 
France is only going to be a problem under Napoleon. Once he's gone, it's not really going to be an issue. Russia is the long-term problem. Uh, whereas the likes of Stadion, uh, who was the foreign minister between sort of Austerlitz and the 1809 campaign, uh, he was more concerned at whipping up German nationalism to attack the French. So there is this big debate. But once Metternich takes the reins in uh, at the end of 1809, it is very much a case of trying to do this deal with France uh, because Austria lacks the population and the finance to take on uh, uh, Russia uh, and, and, and Prussia to a large extent. Yeah, the Austrian story is interesting because that there are pressures on every wherever you turn, really. Um, yes, you know, and and we have the imperial diet. There's there's one in early 1790s, I think, and 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 this this process of the sort of political coming together of how the various constituencies within the empire are then you know they 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 thresh things out. Um, it's it's they're usually set against a backdrop of real trouble um and then you know we've also got this process of mediatization which i half understand um but but how how did that play into it all as well and maybe you could explain for my benefit really <laughs> remind me what exactly what that is it's about it's about big little bits being gobbled up <laughs> yeah, essentially what that came down to was the the French expansion up to the Rhine meant that the, the territories of the various princes on the left bank of the Rhine had been lost. And so this was one of the things that was going on at the conference at Rastatt, which was set up after the uh, Peace of Campo Formio in 1797. And it runs until a little mishap there in 1799. Um and uh, then it, it starts up again after the uh, after the second coalition and finally comes to a conclusion in 1803. Um, what it was was a case of compensating these princes who had lost uh, territories. And a lot of the territory um, in Germany, right up to Munster there in northwest, in what's now northwest Germany, um, is was ecclesiastical territory ruled by various bishops and archbishops. Um, but de facto, they were sort of Austrian protectorates. Um, but a lot of these territories are being secularised and given to the various princes of the empire just to keep them, them happy. But the effect of it, of course, is Austria loses influence. Um, and the other thing was the Austrians had had a sort of long-term plan under Joseph II, and it was revived in 1792 to swap Bavaria for the Austrian Netherlands before they lost it. Oh yeah, very sensible. Yes, it's it's all part of it's all part of this consolidation of the empire that starts under uh, under Joseph II, who uh, reigned in the 1780s uh, to consolidate the empire and develop an Austrian identity, but it means there is this effective withdrawal from Germany as, as the, 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 the bigger states start looking more towards the French for protection and aggrandizement. And of course, that then affects Austrian views and, and increases the value of North Italy as, as somewhere where, you know, okay, well, at least to the south of the Alps, there's some, there's some good territory there. 
Yes, um, they they picked up Lombardy um, about a century before, early part of the 18th century. Uh, but again, it, it is this consolidation. They wanted to keep uh, Piedmont, or part of the, which is part of the Kingdom of Sardinia, as a kind of buffer state with the French, a sort of protectorate. Um, not really a protectorate, just just a, <laughs> just just a sort of a, a buffer state, um, just just to keep the just to keep the French out. Um, yeah, yeah. And uh, but beyond that, you know, and the rest of Italy was fair game. And this is why, of course, they were quite happy to do the swap uh, for Venice uh, at, in 1797, because, again, it consolidates the, the territory. You haven't got these long lines of communication running across other people's territory. And then they, they took Lombardy back uh, at the Congress of Vienna. Let's jump backwards a bit and ask you again about, well, well how, how did you very, how did you start getting interested in Austria? What was the story behind, you know, how you um, began to realise that you had a real interest here? Um, it was at school. We we kind of, as a group of us, started off with the sort of airfix plastic Waterloo uh, figures. And um, somebody got hold of a copy of uh, Campaigns of Napoleon. I think it was an ex-library one. And you, you start looking through that and you realise there's more to it than sort of Waterloo and the peninsula. And, of course, in those days, uh, it was all sort of half of Europe was behind the Iron Curtain. Um, but I had a, um, a one of these world history books, and it focused very much on, on the 18th century. So you had the War of the Austrian Succession, the Seven Years' War. And I, I became rather intrigued by this, this empire that's sort of there. And now, it, of course, it vanished at the end of the yeah. First World War. Yeah, yeah. And... Um, I, I, we, we sort of graduated to metal figures, and at the same time, I started learning German. And uh, so I started, and I picked up a copy of um, McCartney, The Habsburg Empire, which uh, 1790 to 1918, which is a, it's a, it's a very good political uh, book. And I just, 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 just became intrigued. And I, I have this sort of philosophy. It's um, goes, it's sort of in line with Kennedy's speech about going to the moon. About we, we do these things not because they're easy, but because they're hard. And uh, and that's really where I got into it. And I, I decided I picked up a copy of Petra's uh, um, uh, Napoleon and the Archduke Charles, which is the history of the uh, Danube campaign in 1809. And I decided that for my history O-level project, uh, O-levels are, first of all, it's the old name for the exams for 16-year-olds <laughs> in the UK. Yeah. And we had to do a project for it. And so I thought I'd, I'd do my project on Archduke Charles because he's such a fascinating character. And he is right at the centre of things, at least as far as, as uh, 1809. And sort of as a portent of things to come, I, I called it Archduke Charles, soldier and politician. And uh, it was about twice as long as it should have been anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, great. But um, we've been on a family holiday actually to Austria as well. So I, yes, I've been in, I've been in the Army Museum as well, and uh, seen all their famous objects in there. And I then found myself I I, I had some help from people in the Napoleonic Association. Um, on the uh, for doing the project and uh, i kind of got conscripted 
<laughs> into the the Austrian uh, unit within the NA, which is the Deutschmeister, which is run by uh, Ian Castle, who wrote the 1809 Ospreys. And uh, to, to be honest, I didn't take part in many reenactments, but um, I kept it sort of going from there. And I picked up a copy of um, Rauchenstein's Kaiser Franz and Erzherzog or Karl, and that was. That's a that's a political uh, book as well. It's difficult German, and I was only really able to look at that when I was doing German to A level, which is for the 18, 18 year olds. But um, it kind of I didn't do a lot really through the eighties. But in nineteen eighty nine, we had a, a Napoleonic Association trip to uh, Vienna and Austerlitz. Oh yeah, that sounds good. And this was this was in the August, uh, so it's just three months before the Iron Curtain came down. We went, we did a we did a small event on the north side of the Danube uh, on the Aspern battlefield, and then we went to to we went through the Iron Curtain. I mean, I think it was you know three or four hours getting through and getting out, and uh, and we did this we did an event there at um, Slavkov Castle. At Austerlitz, and it was just quite extraordinary. the The atmosphere uh, then you knew something was going to happen. <laughs> you could just feel. I've never known anything like it. It's just extraordinary. Wow! But um, we met at the at the Aspern event. We met uh, Roman and Margot Baulish. And Roman was all intrigued by this, and he's one of life's great uh, uh, organizers. And he he set up. He decided he was going to set up a, a yoga unit in Vienna. And over time, he he finished up doing a lot of the organisation for the the bicentennial events all over Europe. And um, sadly, he he passed away uh, three months before the Waterloo event. Right. But um, the Roman and Margot are very very kind. Uh, uh, to me and and Ian and when Ian was doing his Ospreys there in the early 90s we we went on a, a three-day drinking tour of Bavaria <laughs> <laughs> ah that's the real reason that was the real reason yeah we <laughs> yeah. went around the Bavarian battlefields but we we also tried we tried most uh, most varieties of Bavarian beer <laughs> very good, very good. <laughs> and, and Roman he had a he had one of those Renault galaxies at the time and he decided he was going to drive it up the slope that the French cavalry went up at Ekmore <laughs> ah charge charge and up he went um so uh, yeah, and and after that, I've uh, I started writing for Osprey, and I did the did the seven books, and um, fortunately, Ramon and Margot were have been very kind to me, and Margot is still kind to me. <laughs> she she puts up with me. <laughs> That's great. When I go over, so I go over quite a lot, and um, yeah, I I wrote uh, articles for magazines and and the ABC Clio Encyclopedia and various bits and pieces. What was your process for each of those Osprey books, looking at the different elements of the, the Austrian army? Um, well, the, the, the response I get from a lot of readers is often, oh, I like all this new information, never read this before. I mean, it was fairly easy for me because I could just translate the German. <laughs> but <laughs> um, initially it was a case of uh, I'd been just collecting bits and pieces um, and I'd got enough to do the we called it the auxiliary troops it was either going to be that or was it Grenzer's Freikorps Lanvaer and Insurrection which is <laughs> yes went for auxiliary troops <laughs> <laughs> 
and and sort of going through that it, it that's fairly sort of formal there is a, there is a formula for doing it um but then i wrote the warrior and i got much more into finding accounts of the battles and and how they lived and equipment and all this kind of uh, kind of thing so you, you just kind of draw it together and when i did the artillery book which is which caused a few rows on the internet but <laughs> um <laughs> It was a, I was actually it was quite an interesting situation because I didn't know much about the artillery and it, I could almost put myself in the shoes of the reader and think what is it that the reader wants to know yeah the, you know there's no point getting into things that are just so detailed that without understanding the basic background so you, you tend to um, have that background and then fill in the bits the, the the interesting bits of information along the way and try and try and cover as much as you can but the the the, the main one really was was marengo because um terry crowdy who i didn't know at the time uh he approached me i think it's mid 97 and he said um how about we do an osprey on marengo for the bicentennial and we can do it using sources both from the French and the Austrian side. And this is something you don't very often see. Yeah. Uh, it's usually written from one side. And what we found was, well, the, the first thing you realize is that most of the accounts of, of Marengo are just utter rubbish. Uh, <laughs> they just make no sense at all. And so we, they usually, Ospreys take about six, nine months to write, but and that one took two and a half years. <laughs> yeah, well, it's sort of in a category of its own, really, because that's a pretty complex battle where all of a sudden the situation has changed drastically. It's almost like several battles in one. It, it is. Uh, I mean, the whole campaign, uh, I mean, somebody said that I, it was sort of written more from the Austrian side. Well, I thought, well, nobody's told the Austrian story anyway. But yeah, true, <laughs> the, yeah. the interesting thing about it is that you can actually see a lot more clearly what Napoleon was doing if you sit in the Austrian headquarters rather than following Napoleon just over the Alps because you lose everything else that's going on around it. And yeah. then when you when you come to the actual battle, uh, of course, it was Napoleon's well, one of one of his big <laughs> one of his big propaganda uh, um, efforts over 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 Marengo. Just had to try and make sense of it from from the accounts that are left. But he, he I mean, we used about sixty accounts, I suppose. When you think sixty thousand took part, you realise just how how limited the information actually is. Yeah, but but nevertheless, you're able to piece it together despite some some comments on the inside i mean you, you mentioned the that the, the in the civil service we call it a frank exchange of views but, but, but <laughs> i mean you're quite good at sort of standing on your own two feet on, on the internet and setting out setting out your, your position but uh, what strikes me is the passion and the strength of feeling that there is among so many people about about this period yeah it's um I think the thing about it is that you, you've um, bef before the Napoleonic Wars, there's not that much information. Ah. Uh, there's sort of state documents, that kind of thing. Um, I mean, you, we always see the Tudors on the TV, yeah, because they've only got to read half a dozen documents and they go <laughs> down, they, you know, they, they dress up mentioning no names. Yes, yes, <laughs> uh, yes. At, uh, at sort of Hampton Court and this sort of thing, I make endless programs going over the same bit of ground. 
and when you get after the wars, uh, of course, there's much more literacy, there's photography, film, of course, by the time you get into the 20th century. But the Napoleonic Wars is where this information is starting to come through. But, of course, because of Napoleon's efforts, a lot of it um, is is surrounded in, in French mythology. And, of course, as I was saying, the, the, the writers, the, 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 Anglo, the Anglophone writers uh, of the 20th century very much rely on the French version because they don't read German or Russian or, or whatever. And so you tend to turn up and say, actually, this story is a lot of nonsense. <laughs> yeah. And then wow. you have the people who've been brought up with this stuff and they are kind of, you get, yeah, you do get the keepers of the true flame um, who will, who will denounce you as, you know, you don't know anything and all the rest of it. Well, actually I have actually gone and read this stuff. Did this author that you're relying on read it? No, they didn't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. My grand, I remember my granddad saying to me, "History is really all about how many books have you read." <laughs> that always, that always stuck with me. All you need to do is read more books than everyone else, and you'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> so there we are. There, that's that's good. Okay, so well, one final question would be around um, if if you had to, uh, well, uh, there's some slightly cheesy questions, but if if you to have dinner, uh, an opportunity to have dinner with one Austrian figure from the period who would it be and why oh it'd have to be charles yeah charles okay it have to be have to be yeah uh, and and what what would be the biggest burning questions that that you'd want to ask him about <laughs> um how on earth he got through it all um <laughs> all, all the all the sort of political infighting and uh, and what was going on and his view of the world because the problem with charles is um, you have what they call the dynastic historians who wrote biographies of him in the run-up to the First World War. Yeah. And they, they tend to sort of big him up. It's, it's kind of looking back to the last su successful outing, really, uh, as any, any nation in decline tends to do. Yeah. And, uh, but also, you, the French, because he defeated Napoleon As at Aspern, the French sources also um big him up and when you actually start digging into who he was and what he did and what his his approach to doing things it's so different from the sort of popular view of him and indeed it's, it's one of these problems that it's a sort of a human thing. If you don't understand something, you tend to take a model that you do understand and put it on the bit that you don't understand. And so they, they look at Wellington and Napoleon and, and they're, they're kind of in charge and everything's kind of run as they say. And poor old Charles is just battling all, the, all these factions to try and get something together. Okay, well, that's so interesting. Yeah, it's all about the shortcuts, isn't it, that, that people take, I suppose. And, and then the other... Uh, fi final question would be, which which vic which Austrian victory from this period would you say is the most impressive, or which or which one sort of springs to mind as a um, one that you know w was a real triumph of of Austrian arms that that is perhaps underappreciated. Oh, in terms of underappreciated, um, 
Well, there's kind of two things. I mean, Wagram is 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 actually a lot of um, Austrian regiments chose Wagram as their regimental day later in the 19th century. But yeah, um, yeah. in terms of in terms of successes, it would have to be Würzburg uh, at the end of the 1796 campaign. Right. I see. I, I, that doesn't even ring a bell for me. And we've done 1796. What, 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 well, tell me why. What was the deal with Würzburg? Um, it, it's. Uh, I actually wrote an article on it, uh, so there is what there is one bit in English about it. <laughs> yeah. Um, it must have been '96. I think it was. The, must have been the, the bicentennial year. Um, it, it 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 takes in everything that because Charles, because of his physical weaknesses, relied very much on the chiefs of staff that he could manage to procure himself, and. After the after the initial French incursions across the the Rhine, uh, the chief uh, Schmidt, his chief of staff, and Meyer, his assistant, came up with this plan. It's a very simple plan. If you look at the the the, the road map across Germany, it's like a it's like a short ladder on its side. Right. And what Charles was he, he Charles was in the south with Latour, and in the north was Wartensleben. And they they were having to uh, retreat, but you've got these line these roads these north south roads like the rungs if you like yeah uh, that run um, that run north south and Charles uh, the, the the plan was they would with, withdraw and they made a, a sort of it's like a sort of a screen they fought the battle of Nerisheim there over over three days uh, in early August yeah so that Charles could then pull away with about 25,000 troops to go and support Wartensleben right. in the north. Um, he actually said, um, uh, let, uh, let um, Moreau, who, who was in the south, advance to Vienna if he can. It matters nothing, provided that I beat Jordan. <laughs> yeah, that's what matters. Yeah, yeah. And so he came up from the south and Wartensleben, had, he, he kind of got back to the last rung. It was their last opportunity around uh, Amberg and Wartensleben came in from uh, the east in three columns and Charles came up from the south but he'd run into Bernadotte so Jordan had kind of been tipped off of, of this trap that was being developed and um, <clears throat> he managed uh, although it was an Austrian victory Jordan managed to get away but he was forced north of the mine, and Charles was south of the mine, and they went. They had. They both had. It's it's a strange sort of encounter battle, but it's not one against the other. They, uh, Jordan is coming in from the northeast, and Charles is coming in from the southeast. Yeah, this is beginning to ring some bells. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Charles uh, brought his troops across. Uh, they they kind of they they, they came across, uh, starting down uh, in in the sort of bottom left hand corner, and worked. And they brought more and more troops over uh, the river mine uh, against uh, Jordan and eventually they they uh, they this this flat ground uh, around sort of Jordan's rear where the Austrians could use their cavalry advantage and yeah. they just destroyed uh, Jordan at Würzburg and when Charles wrote it up for his his famous history of the 1796 campaign, he said it was uh, it was Würzburg is among the last battles of the 18th century that was decided by cavalry, which is the title I gave to the the article. 
Oh, that's really good. Well, that I think is an excellent illustration of, you know, the sort of knowledge that you've got that has um, that's able to shine a light on underappreciated aspects of this period. So thank you for describing that, and and thank you, David, for for being on um, the Napoleonic Quarterly. Still got Marengo to come, of course. So I've got a feeling we might be getting you you back for that. But um, uh, in 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 the in the meantime, it's been great uh, great talking to you. Thank you. Well, thank you very much for all the all the work you put into it. It's uh, it, it's I think it's interesting to see all these events running um, alongside each other. You, you, most people go in fairly specialist into their own little bit, and you tend to forget what's going on around. Yeah, and there's so many bits. I think it will get harder and harder to keep all of the so because it gets very very complicated. But I, yeah, it, it, in a very strange way, in slow motion, I, I I sort of feel a little bit like I am, you know, working through the period. And you know, my head is in 1799 right now, and I mean, I'm I'm doing I I you know, it, it, all the 1810 stuff and thereafter feels a long long way away but i'm comfortable where i am now and and slowly slowly working through it so so enjoying it and uh, yeah it's it's really good to um to, to be taking a look at all the different elements the problem is working out which ones to keep in yes yes <laughs> 1805 will be interesting ah <laughs> oh, coming soon yeah absolutely <laughs> great stuff thanks very much david pleasure thanks very much bye-bye